Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as at SGeorgetR on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. And this week, it actually kind of was a college football Saturday, a fake one, but eh, close enough. Football is football, bestie. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna complain about the caliber or type of football played. Hell, I'll watch Purdue spring game if you want me. We to. got the USFL coming up soon too, so you can really get into degenerate levels of football watching if you want to. So we were actually just the other day looking back at some photographs from when we moved into a condo in Chicago about a year ago. Now we were looking at the photos of some of the earliest days when when paint was going up on the walls and we saw that there was a football game on which was strange because we moved in April and then we realized that we were watching the delayed FCS season that took place in the spring because of COVID and we were like wow we're mentally ill (laughs) like this is true insanity actually we are what we are what are you gonna do (laughs) this is what we're here for but we have Spring football. Michigan played football, kind of. So obviously we're going to talk about that. It's the natural topic for this week. No questions asked. That's right. Where do you want to start? I think I'm going to start by letting you, because you're the more astute football observer than me, I'm learning. Mm -hmm. Still go through what you saw maybe schematically that might be interesting in light of the new coordinators on both sides of the ball. And then I think we can just talk about kind of standouts and then introduce a new segment at the end of the episode that I'm really excited. I've had this segment like percolating in my brain for like a very, very long time and I'm excited to be able to introduce it. So we'll have that at the end of the episode, but go ahead and and talk about schematically first impressions, just what, what stood out to you? Yeah. So I, I guess starting off, I would say it was not quite as compelling as I thought it might be or as I worked like as I worked it up in my brain that it was going to be because we got so little time from most of the actually established players Um, I mean we got a quote-unquote game but most of the last three quarters was not starters so uh, I I don't know exactly how much you can take away from a lot of what we saw probably some things more so than others for example on the offense I don't think that we saw a whole lot of anything after the first couple series. Cade McNamara specifically said after the after the spring game that it was pretty vanilla, and that kind of came across. I mean, he threw five passes. Quorum and Edwards each got like a couple touches, and then it was into the like Leon Franklin's of the world, which is like okay, this isn't that meaningful for <laughs> what we're actually going to see in the fall from this team. Um, the disappointment was no no J.J. McCarthy. I mean, that's usually the most interesting part of a spring game, right, is everybody wants to see, like, a quarterback battle. You've got two teams, have the quarterbacks go head-to-head, and you can, like, make some direct comparisons. We definitely didn't get that with J.J. out No, instead we got Cade McNamara playing for both teams and ensuring himself a stake no matter <laughs> the outcome, which low-key, like, He called all, all-time you. quarterback, like, in backyard football. When he just, yeah, just he was rotating. He was like, I'm getting a stake regardless because – I played for the winning team, does it matter? I guess when you win a Big Ten championship yeah, I think you're and you're the returning starter, you get stake, and that's just how it goes. So I can't begrudge him the stake, i got to tell you. That's right. It's the move. But you're right, it didn't make for a particularly compelling storyline. I mean, it, even right. from the beginning, you know, we turn on BTN, we have the broadcast up, and the very, very first thing that comes out of the announcer's mouth, I don't know who was with Jake Butt, but whoever whoever the person was who yeah, was Yeah, some with, third-tier BTN yeah, play-by-play. Yeah, whoever play. he was who was with Jake Butt was like, 
immediately intro storyline was like JJ McCarthy. Right. Like it he's was, not playing today, but that but would be interesting if we could the see storyline. It was the storyline regardless, and right. I think I think because of the way that spring games are typically structured, that like those are the two players who have the ability to showcase themselves more so than anybody else and yeah. the two players that people are most interested in. And so it was a little bit disappointing to not be able to see that. But honestly, all we care about is a full recovery for J.J. McCarthy and the ability for him to sling it come fall. So if he's going to be the holder all day, right. then fine by me. And the fact that he was still out there doing stuff and like holding on field goals, it wasn't like he was sitting on the bench with his arm in a sling or something. Like it didn't, you know, it didn't look like anything particularly concerning in that part, which I guess is good. But but it did take away from a lot of what we were hoping to see as far as like individual competition or just how things looked between the two of them. So, yeah, I, I guess beyond that, on the offense side of things, you know, there were a few little things that we could dig into a bit more. One little observation that I saw at least early in the game when we had Cade in taking snaps for both teams was that there really wasn't all that much of an interior run game, or at least there wasn't much of what we were doing with Haskins last year. It was a little more of like outside zone with Coram or, you know, getting guys in motion and running like counter type of st- stuff that kind of felt like it would better take advantage of the skill sets of guys like Blake Coram and Donovan Edwards. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And when we did see more of that, it came later. And I'll come back to that when we're touching on individual players. But yeah, there, there just wasn't all that much on offense that was particularly interesting, at least outside of some of the young guys getting in and, and rotating in and kind of getting a chance to see what they look like and how they can maybe start to carve out roles for themselves going forward, which again, we'll come back to. I thought schematically the defense was much more interesting and more of kind of what I, I guess, was looking for in the sense that we do have a new defensive coordinator and there's uncertainty around how we have a new offensive coordinator too. But I think it's pretty clear that the offense is not going to change significantly. And the defense, I think there was less certainty about that just since Jesse Minner has the Ravens background, but not a ton of other experience that you can say like, yeah, this is definitely going to look quite a bit like it was last year. And his body of work at Vanderbilt didn't look like what Mike McDonald was doing last year. We, you and I have talked at length about how difficult it is to draw a conclusion based on his body of work at Vanderbilt, just because like you're working with Vanderbilt players, like it's not the same. Right. You're doing what you have to do to kind of get by with the worst talent in the conference, which may not be at all what you want to do with a more optimal set of players. <laughs> right. So it, it's hard to kind of draw conclusions based on what you're seeing there. But we, I think we're both more curious about what the defense was going to look like. Yeah. And I think it did end up looking pretty similar to what we saw last year. Um, there was a pretty good mix, I thought, of 3-4, especially against heavier sets, which I know we had mixed results with last year, and I think we got a little bit more away from at the end of the year as we started to play more spready teams like Indiana and Ohio State versus what we had earlier in the year when we were playing Wisconsin and Michigan State. We did see a good amount of the 3-4, um, but we also saw, I thought, more 4-3 when the situation called for it. Like when whichever offense was on the field was going like empty set or um, like 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end. It seemed to be that they would shift more toward a 4-3 versus a 3-4 with the 3-4 being uh, heavier sets and the 4-3 being more like passing down type of sets. There was also some 2-4-5, which is a little bit unique. So you're kind of hybriding the 3-4 and the 4-3, but with obviously five defensive backs on the field. So it was definitely a multiple defense, which I think is the way that McDonald described it last year. And, you know, whether they're going to end up situationally using that sort of formula or it's going to merge more toward one or the other, I think is is an open question. We'll see kind of how the, you know, some of the edge guys can do with rushing the passer and what they have to do in certain areas to try to 
take advantage of the guys that they have now versus things that they've lost from last year. But I, I thought that was interesting to see the, the, the mixing and matching of different formations and different situations. It looked to me like it was majority cover three on defense, which, again, I don't think is significantly different than last year. I know they were doing a lot of different types of zone stuff last year, and this looked kind of generally similar in that regard. Um, there was some man. There was also, I thought, one thing that was pretty interesting that you don't always get in a spring game was a lot of blitzing, which I think is, is pretty clearly a response to the fact that there's no Hutchinson and Ojabo on this team, and they know there's not going to be a replacement for those guys. And so they're going to have to kind of organically generate some pressure. <laughs> and so to do that, you pretty much have to bring extra guys. And I think they were kind of getting guys opportunities to do that and figuring out different um, combinations of, you know, when to bring somebody off the edge, when to bring somebody inside, how that looks with different personnel packages and different formations. And then they were playing some zone behind that. If they were bringing a guy off the edge, there were some asymmetrical coverages. It was a lot of stuff that I think we saw some of last year, but starting to shift a little bit more blitzy. Um, I don't think I got enough of a view from the TV angle that we saw of like what they were doing with coverage on the back end a, a ton. I tried to like go back and watch replays of it when I could or, you know, figure out what the safeties were doing. It was a little bit tough. I think it was mostly cover three, but with some man. And then, like I said, some asymmetrical packages built in when they were blitzing. Yeah, you, sorry, this is an aside, but it's not. The TV angle for a lot of this, this was like, Okay, I understand that you're giving me BTN's, like, D-minus production team. It's a spring game. Yeah, this was, like, high school amateur level shit. (laughs) How do you... You broadcast, like, half a dozen football games in Michigan Stadium every year. Like, you don't... Like, why are we changing the... Like, the Kaepernick throwing thing at halftime when they were just giving me, like, field-level view of Kaepernick and I couldn't see where the receiver was right. or, like, literally anything. Couldn't like, see where the ball was coming down if it was even getting caught. so <laughs> bad. It's dreadful. So, yeah, I, I sympathize with your inability to kind of see what was going on in the secondary and some of that is just the nature of like even when you're watching a regular game that's hard to tell because unless you have like the all 22 footage you can't really see everybody on the field like a guy runs downfield like is the corner running with him is the corner dropping off and the safety's coming right, like you, you, you just know. can't see that's the really one tell. thing that you know there's a lot of complaints to be made about the stadium experience nowadays with respect mm-hmm. to you know red hat guy comes onto the field i have to boo for four minutes because i'm gonna sit there through a terrible tv timeout it's cold and it sucks and like there are lots of things to dislike about the stadium experience but one of the best things about the stadium experience is being high enough to see all of that and there's nothing better one of my favorite things about college football generally and like the stadium watching experience is that moment where everybody in the stadium knows a guy is breaking open and mm-hmm. you can kind of hear the murmur like move through the crowd everyone goes oh like and you can mm-hmm. just hear it because the guy is is getting open and you're like you're just hoping that your quarterback sees him because yeah. you see him and then when he hits it and the crowd goes nuts it's like the best that is one of the things i think that that can't be replicated about yeah. the stadium experience looking very much forward to getting back to that sooner rather than later but yes it is hard to see that regardless of how good the broadcast is. Yeah, and that takes away a little bit on the defense and on the offensive side when you're trying to see what receivers are doing. Like, you almost never see anything other than guys who are running short stuff over the Give middle. Give me the all 22. Uh, right, yeah, we just we just need the all 22. Give so me can, the all 22. We can do this in a more interesting way. But, yeah, that was pretty much all I had on, on defense. I thought, kind of to summarize that, it, it looked pretty similar to what we saw last year in terms of the... The cover three, mixing of three, four, and four, three, and some other kind of more hybrid packages, 
uh, with the one exception being the the, the blitzing um, which I imagine we will see uh, that's definitely something I would expect to kind of carry over just given that we know the edges aren't going to generate the kind of pressure that Hutchinson and Ojabo were able to last year okay now we can talk about individual players a little bit Let's do it. I'm going to start with our little quarterback, Davis Warren. What a story. Yeah, he was fantastic. He really. was I mean, slinging it. For a guy who was a walk-on. But, I mean, just to give a little context, if you didn't hear what they were talking about on, on BTN. So Davis Warren was a fairly highly touted quarterback recruit early in his high school career and then got leukemia and ended up, I think, missing at least was it his junior season. I don't remember exactly what the story was. but He missed some significant yeah, portion right. of his high school career. And most of his scholarship opportunities kind of dried up given that situation that it was unclear exactly what his, you know, outlook was going to be health wise. But he ended up walking out of Michigan and I mean he he looks like a guy who was a pretty talented quarterback. He doesn't look like somebody you would expect to be a walk on. He's got the arm and the size and it's like, okay, this guy looks real. <laughs> Slinging it and a story made for college game day. Oh my my goodness. Yeah, if he ever starts a game at Michigan, we're a thousand percent getting the oh my the Tom Rinaldi. Yeah. Or, I guess Tom Rinaldi's not on game day anymore, yeah, but whatever is the current... the sad segments <laughs> right. instead of Tom Rinaldi. Whoever that is nowadays. It's not going to be the same. No, it's never the same. Tom Rinaldi's goaded at making me cry during <laughs> football pregame television shows. But amazing story. He looked pretty competent. Like, no, competent isn't... In- he looked pretty good out there like competent I think would be underselling him looked pretty good out there um I was impressed I don't think you know he's going to push J.J. McCarthy for if I mean assuming that J.J. McCarthy remains Cade's backup and I don't think he's going to push for the two is what I'm saying regardless of who the starter is I don't think he's going to push to be the backup really but Mm -hmm. still pretty impressive and there's a you know a version where he does play a couple years from now I think and that would not be totally surprising to me and it's good to see in light of the kind of hole on the roster there because of who remind me he like medically retired JD Johnson was the quarterback recruit who came or had a a heart condition that was discovered I think his senior year of high school and was Michigan's like top quarterback recruit in that class and had to yeah medically retire and now he is uh, working as like a student assistant coach I thought he unretired like he got a second opinion and maybe was going to be of the ability like have the ability to play yeah no that's right actually I I had to look it up because that did sound familiar now that you mentioned it and he did uh, a couple months ago announce that he was going to attempt to continue his playing career and was entering the portal I've not seen any update on that it doesn't sound like he has signed with anyone so unclear as far as exactly whether his career is going to continue but yeah that was the guy who kind of left a a hole in the roster as it exists now right there was like a little bit of a gap in the depth chart after JJ because of this situation and so Good for Davis Warren that he might be able to to kind of hop into that role. I thought he really stood out to me. It's hard. I mean, the quarterbacks are the focus of everything, as we've already discussed. That like, if you can make a couple of nice passes in a spring game, that's that's a really good start. So. Yeah, and like you said, I don't think it'll end up mattering much this year. But I guess there are also scenarios where. What if J.J.'s shoulder issue lingers into the fall and they end up having to do the surgery or what? I mean, there's plenty of scenarios that I can imagine where Davis Warren actually does have to end up seeing the field. Um, probably not if, if Kate and J.J. are both healthy. But it's nice to know that they have someone who looks like he can be a legit Big Ten player and you don't end up in a situation where your drop-off is so severe that in that situation your season is completely fucked. <laughs> For sure, that's a mess. So 
that was my kind of first person who stood out to me. Who was your first person who stood out to you? Yeah, mine was, and this isn't really going to be a surprise to anybody per se. It's not like somebody new, but it was really Blake Corum. I think he had like six or seven carries altogether early on, but it was just, I think from what we saw at the end of last year, when he was hurt for a few games, then he came back toward the end, but he obviously wasn't 100%. His ankle was still bothering him. Remember in the Ohio State game, he had the long run where he got caught from behind. And you could just tell it wasn't quite, it was like 80% Blake Corum. Right, he might not have got caught from behind if he was at 100% or probably yeah. would not have been caught from behind if he was 100%. Right, and almost... It didn't end up mattering because Michigan won that game 42-27, in case anybody was curious. That does sound vaguely familiar. I feel like I've heard that before. Yeah. yeah. Just FYI. But Corum, yeah. Almost every touch he had in this game, he was slicing through the line, getting to the second level, breaking somebody's ankles. It was just kind of a reminder of all the things that, like... When Blake Corum is healthy, he is a legit, like, probably top 10 running back in the country. And I think that was something that was kind of easy to forget at the end of last year with the way that Haskins kind of became the workhorse. And Corum was really more of a change of pace guy, given that he wasn't 100%. It didn't make sense to be giving him 15, 20 touches a game. But seeing it again was like, oh, shit. Yeah, Blake Corum. That guy is legit and can do a lot of damage. He could be a 1,500-yard running back this year easily. And so that's something that's really exciting for me is just to think about what the offense can look like with his sort of shiftiness and and big play potential. I mean, a guy who averaged seven yards a carry last year and did almost the same in the spring game looking like an even better version of himself, that's, you know, that's going to be a a huge part of the offense, if not kind of the centerpiece. Exposing ourselves just a little bit, but... I never forgot how fast Blake Corum was at top speed because you and I, and you shouldn't have either, because you and I have watched like seven times on YouTube that 20-minute recap video of the season that's like the 2% to number two or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like a 20-minute long YouTube video compilation. Where Mr. Brightside gets repeated like six times because over it's just that over long. Over and over It's Mr. Brightside on a loop for literally 20 minutes. And in that highlight video, whoever made it, props to you, you've sustained us. Every time we get like sad, we just put it on. It's not normal. Yeah, it's just once every few weeks. It's nice yeah, to it's like, fine. You're having yourselves. a bad day, put it on. But in that video, there's a clip of Corum's long run in the Washington game. Yeah. And he takes off at top speed. When he accelerates past that safety in the second that they're at the same level, you're like, oh, he's gone. Oh, he's gone. It is over. Peace. See you later. Mm -hmm. And I've watched that clip enough times as part of this 20-whatever-minute YouTube video that I've watched that I didn't forget. Mm -hmm. I remember what Blake Corum looks like when he's dusting people. Fair enough. Yeah, we did see it early last year. But just like seeing that again in its kind of 100% form was a a nice reminder that we've still got a potentially elite college running back to build our offense around this year. And that's not even including Donovan Edwards, who also I think kind of showed some of what makes him really interesting, which is obviously not just as a runner, but... He beat Nikai Hill Green on like a wheel route down the sideline, and Green was kind of running with him, and Edwards used like used his arm to kind of fend him off at the last second and bring in the ball. Uh, didn't quite keep his feet to to score a touchdown, but anytime this offense has Donovan Edwards splitting out and they get a matchup, I want wheel routes. Donovan Edwards should be running like ten wheel routes. I a game. want wheel routes. I want us to say Quan Barkley versus Mike McCray 
other people. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is my request. <laughs> Consider this my formal. I'll send a fax if I have to. This is my formal request to Michigan football, please, for the love of God, please. I think we're going to get a good amount of that. I mean, we've seen it. I think it was really the Maryland game last year where he really kind of blew up as a receiver, and then we saw it continue in that way through the through the bowl game even. I mean, he had um, a couple deep ball opportunities against Georgia, one of which he, he caught. And, I mean, when you're outrunning Georgia's linebackers, you can do it to anybody. And we saw him do it to Nikai Hill-Green yesterday. We've seen him do it to other Big Ten teams. Like, that's something that is matchup-wise, the kind of thing where, like, if you're an NFL team, and like the Saints did with Alvin Kamara for years, right? Like, you create matchups like that. And when you have a guy on somebody else who you know is just not at the same level of athleticism, you can just pick on that. So that's going to be, I think, a big part of the offense this year that I'm pretty excited about. Like, I know we lost Haskins and that sucks and there are going to be a lot of questions about what the interior run game is going to look like how effective we're going to be in short yardage but Coram and Edwards are uh, in the words of our uh, our friends at the bucket problem like Coram's a problem and Edwards is is a bucket at least right now <laughs> for sure Coram is definitely a problem so I'll he also from had there. that incredible moment where he was being interviewed by Devin Gardner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I tweeted about this, where Devin Gardner said something like, the whole staff describes you as like a firecracker. You just have so much confidence, more confidence than anybody they know, and where does it all come from? And before Devin Gardner was even finished with the question, Blake Corum just said, my work. Like, I work as hard as anybody, and I know I put in the work, and I can go out there and do it. And that was just an answer that was like, that's somebody who knows exactly what the fuck he's doing and has no doubt about his ability to do it on the field because he's done it a thousand times before a million percent a million percent i love that answer i was like that is the cool that is the coolest possible answer you could give to that question Mm -hmm. so not only are you awesome but like you're cool that was so (laughs) cool i wish i could be that cool ever in my life just i love it i loved it so much yeah that that was awesome i was going to segue from there into i figured while we're talking about the running backs might as well touch on what we did see in short yardage which was Kind of an interesting mix, uh, mostly Tavier Dunlap, which makes sense. He did kind of look like Haskins. He didn't quite have the the pile moving ability when he was kind of turning his legs, but Haskins almost nobody does, honestly. Like seven people will never not be the funniest thing. I mean, Haskins, the, just his leg drive was something that, like, I can't even think of another running back. Like, what a, do you think his like, leg press weight oh is? Oh, my God. Like, I want to see Hassan Haskins max out on a leg press. I just want to know what his, like, you know, one rep, like, what's the maximum <laughs> that Haskins could do? I just want to know. I'm, I'm deeply curious. It'd be a horrifying amount. I have no doubt about that. Is that even the right way to measure that leg strength? I don't know. I go to Orange Theory and I lift, like, 15-pound weights. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. I'm not, I'm not a weightlifting expert by any means either. I, I would love to know. It, the, whatever the correct metric for how strong Hassan Haskins' legs are, I want to know what that is. I mean, right, whatever it is, like Michigan's not going to equal that this year with any of their options. Edwards, I think, can be a little bit of that player um, because he puts his foot on the ground and he goes straight line and he's got enough, I think, enough strength to to do some of the things that Haskins did, but he's just not really the same style, whereas Tavier Dunlap is a little more of that style and they were getting him short yardage carries and you could see a little bit of the similarity there. We also saw in the second half a lot of Kalel Mullings, who obviously has mostly been a linebacker thus far in his career, but switched over. And somebody on Twitter described Mullings as he's what Wisconsin would normally recruit as a running back, where he's not necessarily I a shifty guy, really, that. like like a quorum type, but he's got pretty good feet and he's got that like bulk to him where you're like, I can see how this could work for Wisconsin running backs are good. 
like for the most part, Wisconsin yeah. running backs are good. Yeah. I'm not going to hate. Nobody recruits offensive linemen and running backs like Wisconsin. So, yeah, that was kind Every of interesting. Every recruit they steal from Rutgers becomes like a top two running back in the league or something. So, <laughs> I don't know. They figured it out. It's working, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if Mullings looks like that, I think he will get some opportunities there. Dunlap, I think, will be first in line for the short yardage stuff. Either one of them is probably going to be fine. I don't think they're going to be, again, not what Haskins was giving you in short yardage. So they're probably going to have to be a little bit creative there, I think, about how they are using guys. I also expect that we'll see JJ in a number of short yardage situations where you're creating more of the threat of quarterback run because you don't have as much just pure, we're going to punch it for a yard. Right. You think they bring back a fullback in that setting, like a lead blocker, because they don't have someone who has Haskins' ability to move people. I could see it. My guess would be that they would use somebody like Eric All, who's a pretty good blocker, and like bring him in or bring him around as kind of a, an H-back, more so than using a true fullback, just because it's not something they practice much. Fullbacks are just peak Jim Harbaugh, so... They really are, yeah. yeah. Ben Mason was maybe the most like the most Harbaugh player of the Harbaugh era. Or, uh, or Khalid Hill, maybe. Khalid Hill, I was yeah. going to say, our hammering panda. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say on the JJ point, we also saw in the second half a lot of Alex Orgy, who has quite a name, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm sure high school was fun for him. Oh, Jesus. Like, saw... my last name is Robbie, and I got rabies a lot, like because it's spelled the same, but with an S in the end. I got rabies a lot. Rabies. She has rabies. High schoolers are so witty. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was bad. But man, I'm sure he had a fun time. Yeah, I'm sure that was an eventful time for him. Yeah, we saw a good amount of Alex Orgy in the second half, and he kind of looks like Joe Milton, um, which has its its pros and cons. But Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that. He is very, very much a work in progress as a passer. I think he went one for seven. I don't have the box score up right now, but it was something along those lines. Uh, most of his throws were just rifled a, a yard over guys' heads, and it was like, okay, this is, this is a guy who's pretty raw as a quarterback. But he was also doing some of the, like, QB power, like, design quarterback runs type of stuff that we've seen a little bit of with JJ, except almost more, like, more direct with Orgy. And he had a couple of short yardage plays where there was one in particular, I think it was a fourth and one, where he got popped, like, a, lo- a yard behind the line of scrimmage by multiple guys. And it was like, oh, shit, they blew that up. And then he, like, spins off it, turns his legs, moves the whole pile two yards forward. And that was the kind of thing where it's like, Okay, that's an interesting short yardage proposition. If you, you have a guy have like, like that, six quarterbacks, <laughs> maybe. I what mean, are we doing? If that's re- like if he can do that better than a Mullings or a, a Tavier Dunlap can do in terms of just moving the pile on short yardage, then maybe a wildcat type of setup is really what what you're doing. You just throw an extra blocker in there. I'm have... traumatized by the pep cat. I don't like. I can't. That was that was a totally different scenario. I mean, that was just giving the ball to a great athlete without any real plan and saying make something happen. I don't think they really had much at that point of a strategy for how to use him or what to do with him in a way so that was particularly creative. I'm so the pep cat. I hated it so much. But in a short yardage situation, I mean, oftentimes a quarterback run is the best way to go there because you just have an extra blocker. All 11 guys are involved if your quarterback is running instead of just handing off like we saw for most of last year with McNamara where he's not a run threat, so nobody respects him. And if you're just handing off, you're just taking a guy, you're playing 10 on 11 basically. Whereas if your quarterback is somebody like Orgy, who's involved in the play, obviously, as the guy with the ball in his hands, you just give yourself an extra blocker. And that can be really effective. We've seen that with, I mean, Ohio State did it for a long time with JT Barrett, right? Boo. I mean, those were elite short yardage offenses because 
again, you're playing 11 on 11 rather than 11 on 10. Except that one time that they did not pick up a yard. Except that time. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to move forward once the 2016 JT was short bomb is dropped on your podcast. It's true. I feel like that's the, we were talking on the last episode about how every, uh, like every topic of conversation, there's the theory that it eventually devolves into like World War II or the Holocaust, and that's like where it where it ends at some point. And all, all Michigan football conversations football. end in the 2016 Ohio State game. But yeah, that that was pretty much it for the running backs. I guess we're just not even running back, but more the running game and what we saw with Corum, what we saw with Edwards in a different way, and then what we saw in the short yardage with Dunlap, um, some Kalel Mullings, and even some Alex Ordu, I think is, is pretty interesting there if they don't really use JJ in that role regularly, or if JJ, again, has some lingering injury issues where they don't want to use him in that way. They've got... I think some other options, and I'm curious to see how they end up kind of piecing something together as we get into the real stuff in the fall. Yeah, I don't know if you have this in your notes and what you've prepared for, for today's episode, but the wideouts were pretty interesting too, I thought. Yeah, we saw a good amount of Darius Clements in particular, who we heard a lot about as being like one of the spring standouts as an early enrollee. I think he ended up with like 10 targets, um, only had three catches, so you know some of those were. Did he have the touchdown? He did have the touchdown on, on kind of a, a deep throw down the seam, and he made not exactly a diving catch, but sort of a, a lunging catch where he had to bring it into his body before he went to the ground, and that was that was nicely done. Um, yeah. So we saw a lot of what people were talking about with Clemens and Harbaugh. I guess afterward described him as kind of a, a young Nico Collins, which is especially interesting because. Even though, frankly, I don't know how much time Clemens is going to get, given all the guys who are ahead of him. I mean, in the first quarter, we saw a lot of Cornelius Johnson. We saw Andrell Anthony. We saw A.J. Henning. We saw some Roman Wilson, not a ton. Um, I think less than we saw him last year during the season when he was healthy, but that may have just been nature of rotation and where the targets went. But, I mean, there are several guys who are probably ahead of him. But also, we really don't have a receiver on the roster who fits that kind of Nico Collins-esque profile, like somebody who can go up and get Nico's a jump ball. Hands. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Nico catches everything. It kind of looked like Clemens did on that the the one touchdown he brought in. Um, so if we can have somebody like that who is more of a a jump ball, a go get a deep ball type of guy, that's something I, I don't think we really have that. And I also didn't even mention Ronnie Bell, who didn't play yesterday, but is presumably the number one guy, and we'll probably okay, play more in the slot. but he had the cutest moment of the game. He, he did. Which is when he was being the ultimate hype man <laughs> again by Gardner on the sideline, and it was at that moment, I think, that Clemens brought in his touchdown. That's right. And he just sprints away from the interview immediately to go, like, be part of the celebration, and then, like, two minutes later comes back and, like, completes his interview. It was just so sweet. It was really heartwarming. It made me happy. It was funny, too, because Ronnie Bell was on camera talking to Devin Gardner on the side line and then all of a sudden they flash to the play and it ends with the Clemens touchdown and then they flip to the camera in the back of the end zone watching the celebration and Ronnie Bell's in the picture so in like two seconds he went from <laughs> wherever Gardner was interviewing him at like the Says 20 yard line or whatever to the back the of the end that's right speed that's maybe right. he's healing very very well we love to he, see he's it. still got wheels still got wheels but yeah I mean Ronnie Bell's gonna play a lot obviously I think more so in the slot this year but, but on the outside right, I we do don't think. have like a big target like right. a big wide receiver target and Clemens isn't as big he's not you know 6'4 230 like Nico Collins was at least not yet I and mean, he could grow some still as a guy who I think just turned 18 but it's so wild that men continue to grow like most women do not continue sometimes to grow. It, it depends but yeah that's it's not uncommon I think for men who are like, 17 we're usually 18 to topped out at like 17 or eight. Yeah. like we don't I got I'm five foot four and I was this height at 16 and I've been this height <laughs> 
and I will be this height forever. I'm 30 now and I'll be this height forever. But like you told me that you grew a ton, like I grew a foot from the time I was 16 to the time I was 18. Yeah. Get out of here. So no yeah. way, <laughs> no way. It's wild to me that that still happens. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't know if Darius Clemens is ever going to get as big as Nico, but if he had a similar skill set, that's something that Cornelius Johnson has a little bit of. Andrew Anthony is a little bit bigger, but is really more of like a, a speed guy. Um, that could be a nice weapon to add in depending on kind of situationally or just as a rotation player to kind of see like if he can become that over the next couple of years, even if he's not part of the kind of core rotation this year, given that there are so many guys ahead of him. For sure. We also saw kind of speaking about the wide receivers because we've got a former receiver here, but kind of, he played a little bit of receiver in the game too, but Mikey, that's right. good old uh, Mikey Saner still, he had some pretty good coverage on Andrew Anthony, like pretty early in the first quarter. Yeah, I gotta be honest, when they were talking about Saner still moving, I kind of thought that that was more of just like a, a depth thing, like, okay, you have a ton of receivers right now, and it seems like playing time's gonna be kind of hard to come by, your corner situation is a little dicey beyond your starters, like, he was played both sides of the ball in, in high school, if he can kind of be there as a guy who gets some, you know, mop-up snaps or rotates in for a few snaps a game just to kind of give yourself more options there like sure that makes sense but yeah he looks like a legit player I mean he had like you said the the, the one uh it was a deep ball to Andrew Anthony on maybe the first or second series of the game yeah it was pretty early where it, it looked like it was a cover three situation where the one of the receivers right in front of him ran a hitch and he kind of started to step up on that like you normally would if that was your guy and meanwhile, Andrew Anthony was running past that receiver on a fade, and Mikey immediately caught that, changed directions, and ran with Anthony and broke up a, a pass over the top. And that's the kind of play where it's like, oh shit, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Not just that he's like athletic, but he's got that he's got the change of direction and the kind of agility that it takes to be a, a corner. But yeah, also I was impressed. that read to figure out what was happening there with the, the receivers crossing over. And to recognize that, like, I'm in cover three, I got to get back and cover that zone and be right on top of it against maybe the most talented receiver on the roster. That was a, an impressive combination of things where, to me, that was the first time that I'd really gotten a chance to see him play corner. And so seeing it, like, for real and realizing that he can do all those things and understands the position was uh, was pretty impressive. Right. I had similar thoughts to you. I thought it was just a position switch because he, they were getting him out of a crowded position, putting him at a position where the where there's significantly less depth, right. and saying, okay, maybe you'll get some snaps here. But nah, he he balled. Like yeah. he went and did the thing. So and that was kind of a thing that had been going around from camp, as we kept hearing like, Mikey Sanders still looks legit. Like he might be the starting nickel. And I was still kind of like, yeah, maybe. Like Rod Moore played a lot there last year, kind of rotating in for Dax Hill and sliding down to cover guys in the slot and. I imagine that he'll still get a lot of time in that role. But he's out coming right here, now. But he's out right now. And so I thought, well, maybe it's just kind of by nature of they don't have anybody who is obviously ready to step into that role other than Rod Moore, who's out. So by default, it's it's saying we're still getting a lot of time there. But, man, if he can do that on a regular basis, he's got a chance to, you know, to be a starter or to, you know, play a significant role there, even if it's more rotational with Rod Moore or maybe – they change up the way they play the safeties, and it's more Rod Moore and, and R.J. Moten as kind of the deeper safeties. Um, there's a lot of different things they can do there, I guess, and having somebody who really does seem like he is capable of getting real playing time there is uh, a nice thing to find out for a for position sure. that looked pretty thin. We also got our first glimpse at Will Johnson, which I think was 
pretty anticipated by virtually everyone. The crown jewel of the recruiting class, That's as right. they call him on the broadcast. <laughs> and, and they weren't wrong. Um, yeah, we, we didn't see a ton of Johnson like in individual coverage situations, so it was a little hard to gauge. But another guy that we've heard a lot about like being physically ready and looking like he could be a starter by some point during the season. The one situation where he did really get a chance to make a play on the ball, or kind of ball-ish, was uh, a little like goal line fade they ran to Cornelius Johnson, where Will Johnson was just all over him, like completely shut it down, and the throw went slightly over both of them. And that's the kind of thing where, like, okay, yeah, I can see that he is very physically capable of being a Big Ten corner. So if he starts to learn the nuances of playing some of the different zones and the things they're doing there, which I imagine he will, I mean, I don't think it's just athleticism that led him to being a, a five-star recruit. He was pretty pretty much the consensus number one corner in the class, not a guy who's, like, switching positions or you're trying to project there. So I, I would not be surprised if he ends up taking a spot from somebody like Jemon Green during the season, or, or DJ Turner potentially. I think Turner and Green are probably the default starters going into the year. But, I mean, Will Johnson looks like he's going to be a, a baller. So, For sure. I think we would be remiss if we did not talk about the defensive line. Just because I think before the game started, you know, we, we talked about the podcast, we talked about the episode before we sat down to turn the spring game on, and we said, what are you watching for? And both of us, the immediate response was, we're looking at the defensive line, and we want to see who is going to come on at those end spots and who on earth could possibly attempt to mm-hmm. replace Hutch and Ojabo. So... I, we would be remiss, I think, not to to discuss that. So go ahead, Matt. Let me know what you saw, and, and I'll jump in. Yeah, on the edge guys, I thought we saw a lot of Mike Morris. Um, he was getting, I think, the most snaps of any of the edge players, and he kind of looked like the guy who was most entrenched there and was most active, rushing the passer, getting in and, and you know getting his head into the running plays on both the inside and the outside. He looked like the guy who, to me, was probably the most kind of ready for like a full-time starting job. Um, beside him, we also saw kind of a mix of uh, Taylor Upshaw has gotten a lot of talk this offseason as somebody who can potentially kind of take a leap and become you know, more of a, an all-around standout. I I really haven't seen that yet with him. I, I don't mean to be like overly harsh. Uh, I think he's like a solid all-around player, but... I just haven't seen enough of him being like he's a little thin to be particularly stout in the run game and he hasn't really shown the like athleticism or bend to be a guy who can regularly rush the passer so I I feel like he's a player who's probably valuable to have as somebody who rotates in regularly and kind of gives you good enough. So you're saying you think he's just a guy? That's basically what I'm saying yeah and like I said I don't mean that to be too insulting but I just don't think that at this stage of his career I haven't really seen anything that leads me to believe that he's going to Become something much Prove more us than wrong, that. Bestie, yeah. would love to see it. Yeah, um, no, that would that would be great. I, and I imagine he will get some pretty regular time. We saw him a good amount in the spring game. Didn't seem super productive, which kind of was in line with what we've seen before. TJ Guy was kind of interesting. He's another guy who is pretty. Uh, I, I say guy like that's. I'm using the word guy too many times in every sentence where I reference TJ Guy. But uh, watching him play, he is somebody who has that sort of acceleration off the line and the ability to get around a tackle and create some quick pressure. He also feels like he's got a lot of work to do on like kind of bulking up to be a full-time player and figuring out how to play run defense. There were a couple times where I was watching a little bit more closely 
the interaction between the offensive and defensive lines and he was kind of getting knocked back or out of the play and it was like okay that's probably not somebody who is going to be a full-time player there if he can't really hold up that well to the run game we saw some Braden McGregor I think he continues to be interesting but also was not somebody who was regularly creating pressure or doing a lot of things where he looked to me like he had taken that huge step forward that you hoped he would take to be the next Aiden Hutchinson, but realistically it's probably going to take a little there more time. No in the... Aiden Hutchinson. <laughs> He's probably going to take a little more marinating to get to that level. Um, Aiden Hutchinson's one of a kind, I think. He really is. He really is. So that's asking a lot. But uh, my expectation based on what we saw yesterday is that Mike Morris will be a full-time starter and will be used in a couple of different ways on one side of the line. And the other side will probably be a mix and match of Upshaw, Guy, McGregor, um, Morris, I'm sure, will be off the field some too, so you'll see some different packages there. But my guess would be you'll see some rotation until somebody kind of really takes that job and starts to run with it, or maybe it just stays a rotation all year. Jenkins was awesome. I mean, I think he's more of a like a three technique defensive tackle. But he was saying, can he do you think he has the ability to maybe get like DT pressure? I do, yeah. I think he'll be a, a big part of that. That he, would he alleviate be... the need to get it from the ends necessarily, is what I'm saying. The yeah. Mohurst, the proverbial Mohurst. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, actually. I think if there's anybody on the roster who can be a Mohurst, it is Jenkins, because he's got that first step and the ability to like penetrate inside and create pressure in the middle of the pocket in a way that we haven't really had from a defensive tackle in a minute. Since Mohurst. Probably since Mohurst. I mean, certainly not at that level. We haven't had anything close to Mohurst. Um, but Jenkins was kind of all over. He was probably the best defensive lineman in this game, um, which was interesting. Mozzie Smith is, I think, the best defensive lineman on the team just because he can do so much in terms of basically just creating a black hole in the middle. Somebody of his size who has learned the techniques of playing an interior nose tackle type position, that's so valuable for what it does for the whole inside of your defense. But Jenkins looked like a guy who had really taken a step forward, and some of that was against offensive linemen who I'm sure are not scholarship players, guys whose names I'd never heard of before in my life. Um, so it's kind of hard to tell, like, okay, how meaningful is that? But at the same time, he was all over the place in ways where it was like, okay, this guy can do a lot of things and is an interesting athlete who positioned next to somebody like Mozzie Smith who can almost always absorb two blockers that guy can do some damage in one-on-one matchups and will, I think, like you said, help a lot to alleviate some of what they don't have this year coming off the edges. Yeah, I think that's right. And you made an interesting point, which I think is a general caveat that we should probably apply to spring games generally, is that it is pretty hard when you're assessing these players to come to reasonable conclusions based on who they are often lining up against. And I think that's true just like if you don't have the full offensive line yeah grading run blocking is hard or like trying to determine if they're doing a good job run blocking is hard and especially in the second half when it was almost all the established starters were out of the game and you were getting like i don't know uh rayshon benny going against raheem anderson or whatever and it's like okay those guys were both good recruits and are probably going to be good but do i know if like raheem anderson is actually ready or is one guy just roasting him because He's still figuring out the position or whatever. Like, there, there's so much of that. And then you've got all the walk-ons, too, where it's like, this guy's never going to play. He's not a Big Ten-level sure. player. So how do I interpret the performance against him? To... And I think generally, m- my opinion is that the nature of spring games in general favors defense, 
which is to say I think it is more difficult for the offense to look cohesive in situations where it is split and mm-hmm. half of you know the players you are accustomed with playing with are on the other team. Right, because your defense, you usually rotate and have different packages. I mean, offense, you have some different packages, but you're usually you're not rotating your offensive linemen. Right. They're you're the not same, really rotating your quarterback outside of situational stuff. I mean, even J.J. like played a decent amount last year, but it was almost always like run package yeah. type of so stuff. The offense, so the yeah, offense, even it's... with Caden, looked a little disjointed. Right. And Cade didn't look great either. And I think, you know, for the corner of the fan base that has their pitchforks out about Cade McNamara, <laughs> like this did not help. But also, my general view is that spring games are harder on offenses because yeah. splitting up the offenses, I think, is more it is more disadvantageous to offenses than it is to defenses, and that's just generally sure. my view. So when you you know you make that caveat about some of our the players that we saw kind of had standout performances, Jenkins or whomever else, you know, general caveats apply to the whole game really, um, right. and and what you're seeing. But we're doing our best. Yeah, and I will and it's mention, still football to talk about, so I will damn well talk about that's it. That's right. And while we're on uh, Chris Jenkins, I should also mention that Mason Graham, um, who was another freshman early enrollee, uh, I think came in as a four-star and has had some some hype this spring. He looks like a guy who is going to be a, a real player. Like he had a couple of situations where he kind of blew up the interior of things. At one point, he drew a holding call early in the game against um, Oluwatimi when the starters were in. And so, on the one hand, I didn't love that for Olawatimi. <laughs> on the other hand, I loved that for Mason Graham. <laughs> right. And knowing that Olawatimi is not just a good college center, but like probably a top five center in the country coming back from... Remington finalist right, center. Right. I mean, yeah. Already like clearly established, no question, starter at center this year. To have a true freshman who's coming in as a, an interior defensive lineman where you almost never have good players who are freshmen or even sophomores very often, to have him in early getting time and kind of wreaking some havoc. That's very good indications uh, early on for Mason Graham. We saw a little bit of Rayshon Benny as well. I mentioned him before just as a more of a, a hypothetical, but he certainly looked like a guy who's got a little bit of that Chris Jenkins thing where he's got the athleticism and, and the size, and you can see him being a real impact player, whether it's you know maybe not this year, but in the next couple of years, it looks like the uh, D-tackle position is in pretty good shape. We love that because the D-tackle position was in very bad shape for a very long time. It did get rough for a little while. It was so obnoxious. Although, to be fair, I mean, we had Mozzie Smith and Chris Hinton. They just they hadn't really taken the step forward to get to where they finally yeah, did last year and, and this year. Yeah, but what happened in the gap between 2017 when Mo Hurst yeah. left and Mozzie Smith and Chris Hinton last year, jack shit happened Agreed. on the interior line. So like, it, was, it was rough for a while. But we're, uh, we're on the upswing now. You want to talk a little bit more about... Uh, we, I think we had a few other just kind of random observations from the game itself that were entertaining or uh, interesting or whatever. Are you asking me to introduce my new segment? Is I that was going to start, start elsewhere, I'm but let, at the let's bit do it. Do I know this. you're very excited about this, so let's do it. Okay. So the segment, this segment has been brewing in my mind for a really long time, and I think what started it was at the Orange Bowl... I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it was the Orange Bowl where we we ran a flea flicker and the receiver whoever the deep ball receiver was on the flea flicker I can't remember Mm -hmm. he didn't get open and so the flea flicker kind of failed but we ended up throwing a check down flea flicker check down and I was like 
that's the most Michigan thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> a flea flicker check down. I couldn't believe it. I was cackling like the game was already not going well. And I would ju- I just like laughed uncontrollably at the flea flicker check down. And that inspired what we are going to call the most Michigan moment of the game. And the idea is you have to watch a game and pick a moment where you're like, man, that's the most Michigan shit I've ever seen. It can be, you know, a play that involves a fullback, you know, the the Harbaugh eye train formation from 2015 could have been a most Michigan moment of the game, right? So you have to pick your most Michigan moment of the game, the moment that you think best encapsulates Michigan football as a program or, you know, the philosophy of the coaches or, or whatever you want it to be. We were also, right before the game, they put on the 2021 Big Ten Championship game, and you pointed out, I think, what the most Iowa moment of the game. Oh, yeah. There was a point in the third quarter where it was right after um, Spencer Petras had gotten taken out or knocked out of the game. I don't remember exactly what happened, but Alex Padilla was in at quarterback for Iowa, and uh, he drops back to pass on like a, a third and four and somebody blows him up from behind. But just as that happens, he gets rid of the ball out into the flat to a running back, like right at the sideline, and the guy steps out of bounds for a loss of a yard. And it's like a completed pass for a loss of a yard while the quarterback's getting destroyed is some extremely Iowa offense. It's (laughs) spiritually as Iowa as possible, and that's really what we're going for. So every time Nebraska like massively fucks up a special teams play, that's spiritually the most Nebraska moment of the game. We're looking for spiritually the most Michigan play of the game. And for me, it was the tight end to tight end touchdown. It was Eric, like the trick play. It wasn't a touchdown, but it got, it got him down inside the, the 10, I think. Yeah. It was the like trick play double pass That's right. to Eric All, who then had the completion to Loveland. I was like a tight end to a tight end on brand. Jake Butt loved it on the broadcast. He did. He said, like, this is this is the moment I was born for, a tight end to tight end trick play. Tight end to tight end trick play. I don't know that anything in this game... very horrible. Anything that actually happened in the game is more Michigan than that, but you have a kind of ancillary selection, right? Yeah, I thought the tight end to tight end pass was going to win. Like, that's that's some pretty extreme Harbaugh slash Michigan shit, is like two tight ends involved on opposite ends of a passing play. But... For me, it was in the fourth quarter when Harbaugh had just gone on to like making up his own rules. Which yeah, he was changed the rules. Amazing in his own right, but He's it was like, It's going to be longer. I'm going to review all the penalties. I, like, okay, Jim, whatever you want, Jim. Uh, right. It wasn't so much that he was making up rules. It was a specific moment that kind of came about as part of that. It was after the last touchdown, which uh, was scored by a walk-on whose name I've already forgotten. Um, but they're celebrating by doing like the human limbo stick where they, they hold him up and guys are running underneath him and doing the limbo or it looked like some guys were treating it as like a touch the banner situation, which was either way was spectacular, incredible celebration, 11 out of 10. And then Harbaugh, because he's making up his own rules at this point, he calls an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty on Michigan for celebrating, even though they've been doing the ridiculous celebrations all game. Which is amazing, again, in and of its own right. And then the crowd boos as they announce Harbaugh calling the unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. Which is the whole sequence of events of, like, we're doing something fun. Harbaugh throws a flag on it. The crowd boos. It was just, like, the whole kind of atmosphere in that moment was, like, this feels very, very Michigan. I think this has surpassed. It was very Michigan. I think that surpassed the, uh, the tight end to tight end pass, even, even though that seemed like a, a, very, uh, a very strong leader in the clubhouse when it happened. So that's our segment. We're going to continue doing that segment all fall. And I 
absolutely intend on periodically when necessary expanding it to other teams like if i watch kirk ferentz punt from you know his opponent's territory at the 38 oh yeah when he punts from the 38 that's 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 going to be like i'm going to bring that up Mm -hmm. it's going to happen spiritually the most iowa moment of the game and so these are our, our selections spiritually the most michigan moments of the game if you have another Michigan moment of the game that you think qualifies at us, um, me or Matt individually, or you know the podcast is Twitter at Forever Sat Pod, tweet us and let us know what you think spiritually the most Michigan moment of the spring game was. Absolutely. But while we're on the celebrations, I think we should uh, we should rank them. What were your like in order from best to worst? What were your favorite celebrations? Because all of them were pretty fantastic. I feel like I have to go keg stand, touch the banner, selfie in that um. order. I like the selfie celebration, but it's like, it's fine. Like I've seen yeah. it before. It's fine. I'm not sure I've ever seen a keg stand celebration before. No. And no. I thought that was deeply fun. Like I was like, are they? <laughs> Haven't seen one of those in a decade, but are they doing a keg stand right now? They are. Okay. They, they definitely were. It yeah. was amazing. It took I a minute to it. really unpack what was going on there, but. I loved it. And I have to rank the limbo slash touch the banner second, because I'm not sure exactly what it was. The first couple of guys like, actually bend backwards going through it as if they're doing the limbo and I was like okay that's obviously the limbo but then a couple of the guys who came in after did not like well it's like a couple of the shorter guys ran through because it was like linemen holding him up and with the shorter guys it was like I don't really have to limbo yeah, so I might as well get creative like, listen even if you're doing when you're doing the limbo in real life even if you're short and I know this is like a not particularly tall woman even if you don't really have to do the bend backwards thing, you still do it because it's like part of the vibe. Like you're supposed to bend backwards Fair. when you do the limbo. And so you just kind of shrug your shoulders back a little bit and like, you know, you do it because you're supposed to and you it's for the it's for the aesthetics. You do it because it's it looks right. Fair enough. Even if you don't actually have to do it. But then a couple of them were like reaching up and it looked like they were touching the banner. And I was like, if that's touching the banner, that's a million out of 10, the best (laughs) celebration I've ever seen. But I'm not sure if it was intended to be limbo or touching the banner. And that brings it down a peg to behind the keg stand. That's that's my official take. Interesting. Mine is similar, but either way, whether it was limbo or touching the banner or some combination thereof, I got to go with that one. Number one, I thought that was amazing. And then keg stand also amazing but i I gotta put that number two just just a touch behind and then yeah selfie was like you said it was fine it was nice that ronnie bell was able to uh, run in and participate as a and they had an actual (laughs) phone they it did, wasn't yeah. I like think it, a, was, uh, it wasn't like a mimed. No, it was, like, I think Roman Wilson like took his glove off and all of a sudden pulls a phone out of somewhere, un- unclear where. Yeah, they're just but... playing with their phones out. <laughs> right. Like, what if you get hit? Someone smash your screen. But they yeah. ha- he had an actual phone, so there's a selfie, like an actual selfie, which is not the same as like in the NFL or whatever they do this, but they just like right. fake it. They like mime the selfie. Right. Um, we also really need more. Like the fact that college football players can't actually celebrate at all without getting a flag thrown on them is terrible and criminal. And we need yes. we need more keg stands. Like stop, stop. No, we can't. You don't no have fun to, league. This. Right. You don't have to don't make no it like league. the NFL. Do you remember when? Not that I'm like particularly fond of Ezekiel Elliott because like he sucks. But do you remember when he got in like a bunch of trouble? The NFL like fined him because he jumped into the gigantic Salvation Army red kettle. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. that? <laughs> he like they had a big Salvation Army like red kettle on the sideline. Like must have been you know at the part of the year where they start collecting money for the Salvation Army. Yeah, like, it was just like an early December holidays, game, like probably November to December kind right. of game. And he jumped into it 
after he scored a touchdown, and the NFL like fined him a bunch of like you suck. I completely forgot about that, but that was really Stop really fantastic. Being terrible. Bring back awesome celebrations like yeah. keg stands and touching the banner or human limbo or whatever the fuck it was. It doesn't even matter. They were all yeah, amazing. Make it fun. Right. Keep it fun. We like it. So I think with that, we'll wrap up for the day. This was our last real football for a, a while. I mean, we've got fall camp starting in about four months, and then the season starts five months from today. We're recording this on Sunday. So April 3rd, September 3rd's not that far out. You can kind of start to see the, you know, the light on the horizon. We're getting close, five months, and I don't know, Matt and I are going to have to figure out what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be out of town for this trial that is currently sucking my soul out of my body. Um, Unclear if we're going to be, if I'm going to have time to record, I'm going to be living out of a hotel for the next month. We might try to do them remotely so that we don't leave you guys hanging for a month, but it might be a little bit until we're back. But... We cannot wait to be back with you as we itch closer to the season. We're going to start previewing the team in general, previewing the conference, previewing all of the conferences, I think, is probably on our plan to talk about. At least Um, to some degree. At least to some degree. Obviously, I think the Big Ten will be more in-depth than the other conferences for reasons that should be obvious, but... We're looking so forward to it. This is kind of the big doldrums of the offseason at this point. College basketball plays its national championship game tomorrow, and I don't give a shit about baseball, so this is like the most depressing time of the year for me. We have me. a couple more weeks where we still have the, the other spring games. Like this coming Saturday, we have, I guess, Nebraska and Purdue are both on BTN, and there's some various other Let me tell you that I will ones. watch those. Oh, yeah, yeah, same. A degenerate. I was going to say, it's really after the spring games wrap up that we're into the the real trough of of sports for so uh, we're gonna have to come up with some shit to talk about but we will maybe we'll take the break while i'm at trial to come up with that stuff maybe we'll continue to record while i'm at trial it's just going to be a time permitting kind of thing but either way if you're still here we're very thankful that you're continuing to listen and we will be back next week maybe we'll see